This Eve, uh, appreciate especially your prayer for us this past weekend. I was uh, somebody asked me for a little update, um, and uh, we uh, we went last weekend, and um, the judge ordered an expedited home study of our home, which is a good thing. Um, so that's uh, going forward, and we're thankful for that um, because um, the father of uh, Casey's father did not come to the hearing. They've given. Two week, uh, two weeks from now, there's another year. Um, he's got, you know, they're trying to serve him notice in another state, and he he knows, but uh, he said, well, I didn't get written notice, so I'm not coming, and so they're, I think, trying to get that to him in the next two weeks. And uh, Friday morning, January 30th at nine o'clock, uh, we'll. I think there'll probably be like six or seven cases on the docket, so it might not be like at nine o'clock, but that's when he'll start those six or seven cases, and. Um, so we should know more then, um, and um, it was, but it was an incredible weekend with her. We had a you know, chance to go shopping, and uh, that was uh, that was a great thing. And uh, then we, um, you know, we went out to eat and, and uh, got ice cream afterward, and it was just a. And then we watched her play basketball on uh, on Saturday morning, and uh, you know had the chance to encourage her in that, and I think she was grateful that we were there. Um, Monday night, we went back and did uh, the memorial service for her mom, which was a very emotional time. Um, um, just, you know, waves of emotion when a family member passes away. Um, and, um, you know, it was a chance to say thanks to Texas Baptist Children's Home, too, for the way they were kind to our family. Um, before we... we uh, had the service though uh, she had picked out a skirt she was going to wear you know these are important things and uh, apparently didn't fit so we went shopping again and uh, got her a dress and uh, you know um, her grandmother called me about that time and said now um, Dwayne you know at some point somebody's going to have to tell her no on the shopping and I said I understand Aunt Alice and that's probably not going to be me so um, anyway it was uh it was a it was a great uh, time with her, and you know, um, again, some of the great things God does in our lives are surprises. And um, part of what's happening right now, from our point of view, is um, you know helping her feel comfortable that you know we're the kind of people who would love her. She needs stability and security. So you know, it's just amazing that God's kind of brought this into our lives, and it's a journey, and we don't, we don't know at this point where it's gonna where it's gonna lead. Um, a lot of things could happen. Um, but I think in a couple of weeks we'll know, or a week and a half we'll know a little bit more. Um, so, but I was thinking about that whole thing, and I think we're going to use our clip here, Gary. Um, you know, just um, that special bond or relationship sometimes between uh, uh, parents and their children. Do you all have that in your families, that sort of reverse bond to the sort of mom and son and dad and daughter kind of thing? And uh, a movie that I saw a couple of years ago, uh, called The Ultimate Gift, gives a picture of um, a man who comes into the life of a little girl at a, a, a tough time in his life and a tough time in her life. And uh, he makes some promises, and I just want you to see how he handles that. You have a bet with the dead guy? Mm-hmm. Cool. Emily, be polite. Wait, how can you have a bet with a deceased person? See, that's the part that's complicated. So, you come up with a friend. What do you get if we go along with this? Emily. No, it's okay. I don't know. Something about 
penultimate gift or something. I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, that about sums it up. So what do we get if we agree to do this? We need money. How much are you willing to pay? Emily! I, I'm sorry, you're going to have to excuse my daughter. Sometimes she tends to be a little outspoken. I can't promise you anything. Now that's better. But what if we really did become friends? So you're Jason's friend? Yes, I am. True friend? Absolutely. Pinky promise. So how long have you known Mr. Stevens? We go way back. We're like this. Now, where do I sign? And, uh, he hasn't promised you any compensation for this friendship? Look at him. Does he look like he has anything to offer? So, uh, you expect this friendship to continue? I plan on knowing Jason for the rest of my life. That's an interesting movie. Um, you know, there are words that are words, and then there are words that ought to be. And I found a list of those this week. Uh, aquadextrous, um, you know what that would be? The ability to turn off the bathtub faucet with your toes. That would be aquadextrous. Uh, car perpetuation, the act of vacuuming, running over a string or piece of lint about a dozen times, then reaching down, picking it up, and putting it back down and running over it again. A uh, disconfect, which we call in our family the 15-second rule, uh, to sterilize a piece of candy you dropped on the floor by blowing on it, assuming that will somehow remove all the germs. Uh, back from the days of uh, uh, milk cartons, uh, uh, lactomangulation. That's when you manhandle the open here spout so badly that you have to resort to the illegal side. Uh, phonesia is the affliction, do you have this, of dialing a phone number and forgetting whom you were calling just as they answer. Uh, pupkus. That's the moist residue left on a window uh, by a dog's nose. Um, Telecrastination, that's when you let the phone always ring twice, even though it's right there. Elbonics, you ever done this on the plane, where you're on the plane and you're trying to, to see who gets the armrest? Um, and frust is the uh, small line of debris that refuses to be swept into the dustpan and keeps backing you across the room. And I made up a couple words this week. One, petroloquation. A petroloquation, what would that be? That would be when a, wor that would be when a rock uh, talks. And petroambulation, <clears throat> when a rock walks. And I want us to look at the life of Peter, whom Jesus called <clears throat> a rock, and just see the way he talked and the way he walked. And whether, as we just saw in this film clip, uh, his uh, talk and his walk actually matched up. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 25 um, the larger context is um, that there are big crowds of people who are following Jesus and um, these large crowds of people are just trying to decide whether Jesus is who he claims to be. And I think every day that's a decision you and I have to make. Who is, 
who is Jesus to us. And that has a lot to do with not only what we say on Sundays, but the way we live uh, the rest of the week. So Matthew chapter 16. Can we stand together to read the scriptures this morning? Matthew 16, verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 25. Then Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Simon Peter answered. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are, are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can he give in exchange for his soul? You may be seated. Thank you. Thank you. When we see place names in the New Testament, sometimes, you know, we just read right over them because we don't have any any basis for knowing what that place was like. Um, Some years ago, I think it was back in 2000, we took a tour uh, to to Israel and we went uh, to this area called Caesarea Philippi. And it was not anything like I imagined it would be. Uh, It was a place with a huge uh, sort of um, hill made of granite. And um, underneath that hill, there's a spring, a natural spring. And water flows out of that and flows um, kind of around a pathway there. And Melanie and I were there, and we were walking around, and there were these beautiful little purple flowers, and they were cross-shaped. And, you know, I just thought, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, if I could have a cross-shaped flower from the Holy Land, that would be really cool. So I just reached down and picked one, and immediately there were men with with guns, you know, standing there, and they said, please do not pick the flowers. And I said, okay, I will not pick any more flowers. And um, and I was just kind of walking around that place, and there carved in the granite, there are these niches. And and on those niches, they sort of carved into the granite, uh, they, they carved these like little pedestals where they would put their idols, and people would come and bow down there. And I thought it was interesting that Jesus chose that particular place where people worshipped gods from the ancient world, to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? In a world filled with uh, these pretend wannabe gods, um, do you believe that I'm the one true God? And Peter is at his best, especially when it comes to talking. Peter, has he always um, had to say something whether or not he had anything to say. And so 
uh, in this instance, he really had something to say. He recognized who Jesus was. He's the only one who recognized who Jesus was and was willing to, to say that out loud. And it was a sort of shocking thing, I think, at that point for him to say, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, to look at another person who is flesh and blood and say, we know who you are. And Jesus commends him for that and says, I have great things in store for you. And Jesus just speaks this bright future and says, I'm going to use you and you're going to have the keys of the kingdom and you're going to bind things and you're going to loose things and I'm going to use you. And then, like, as the text reads, within a very short period of time, as Jesus begins to teach them and says, and I'm going to be crucified, and Peter takes him aside and says, that will never happen. Jesus, you're wrong. He's just called him the, the son of the living God. And then he says, you're wrong. And, um, you know, all of us have good days and bad days. It seems like Peter had that unique ability to have him on the same day, you know, that he could be at his, at his best one second and at his worst the next second. And he could really talk the talk. But sometimes when it came to walking the walk, that was harder for him as it is for us. And Jesus said to him, okay, here's the deal. Um, if you want to come after me, if you just read it in this context, if you want to come after me, it's not just talking the talk. You're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to follow me, and I'm going to the cross. I'm not headed to the Jerusalem Hilton. Uh, I'm not headed to a life of ease. Uh, on another occasion, he says, I don't have any place to lay my head. But if you want to come after me, then, then deny yourself. This is not the time for you to be saying, wait a minute, selfishly, Jesus, I wish you would be a king here, and I could be your you know, a right-hand man as your king. Um, instead, you've got to walk the walk. And I sometimes identify with Simon Peter. I don't know if you do, but um, you know, it's like James says, it's hard to believe that out of the same mouth can come uh, uh, praise, and, you know, praise for God at the same time, you know, frustration with people, and um, that that salt and fresh water shouldn't flow from the same stream. And I look at, at Peter on this occasion, and I try to imagine um, his amazing potential and all that Jesus saw in him, and then Jesus' frustration with him when he was, you know, when he would say one thing and then do another. And so, you know, what's the answer? I mean, if, if, if you and I were honest today, just as a matter of integrity, integrity, the Hebrew word is thamam, it means wholeness. It means that, you know, you, you have it all together. But I find in my own life that there are times when my talk outstrips my walk, uh, that I can say more and make promises that are hard for me to put into practice like Peter. And I think the answer is not for us to promise God less. You know, one thing would just be to say, okay, I'll never promise God anything. And then, I, you know, if I don't deliver, then it did. But I don't think that's the answer. I think somehow we should talk the talk. We should uh, be followers of Christ verbally. But at the same time, uh, bring our level of practice up to the level of our promises. So let's just kind of look at these verses together. Chapter 16, verse 16, especially when he says, you are the Christ. That word, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, that word means the one, the anointed one, the Messiah. And uh, Peter was, you know, as sort of the master of blurt. I mean, he was always blurting something out. It was kind of ready, shoot, aim for him sometimes. Kind of, I, I've called him the Charles Barkley of the disciples. You know, he just he had to say something. And um, but then sometimes again, his life didn't match up with that. And what I love about Peter is that he didn't miss the moment. Um, Everybody was there. Everybody had a chance to talk. Everybody had to say, hey, you are the Christ. But Peter was the one who actually saw it happen. I remember some years ago, um, I went to um, um, Good Company Barbecue just over on the freeway. And I was eating there with some, some friends. And I remember while I was sitting there, well, first of all, when we came in, we ran into, uh, some of you know Carl Stevens and uh, uh, Wayne Hodge and some guys were there. And uh, I went in. And I spoke to them, and then I went and sat down. And sometime during our meal, I was facing away uh, in that sort of back room there. Um, I heard a commotion 
but I didn't know what it was, you know. And and uh, I remember as I was leaving, there was this kind of long line of black, like, Ford expeditions. And um, so, I, you know, I walked out, and I got in my car, and I what I do typically, I, I dialed in my assistant, and I said, anything going on? And she said, yeah, how was lunch? And I said, that was, it was really good, you know. And she said, no, really, how was it? I was like, I mean, it's probably the best barbecue around here, I think, you know. Um, we don't usually talk about food, you know, okay. Uh, and she said, no, I mean, you know, what happened at the restaurant? Um, I ate. Oh, I, I ran into Carl Stevens and Wayne Hodge and a young preacher friend of mine. They were sitting there talking with him. He's doing an inner city church, and we were talking about that. And she's like, no, the president. And I'm like, the president. And she said, no, Wayne Hodge called me and said, you might be a little bit late getting out of the restaurant because while y'all were there, George Bush, uh, the older came in with a group of secret servicemen and got barbecue and he went upstairs and that you were there. And I was like, wow, I missed it. I mean, I was there. The president came. It was my big moment. I even saw the cars and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't meet him. And I, I love about Peter that, that, you know, when he had his chance, he didn't miss his chance. And I would just say there are moments in our lives when God makes himself very real. When he shows up in ways that we didn't expect, at times when we couldn't have imagined... And when those times come, if like Peter, our hearts are ready, we will, you know, we will experience that. And, you know, we sometimes look at very vocal Christians like Peter, and we're a little leery of those who, you know, who speak up and talk the talk and are excited about Jesus. It makes us a little bit nervous sometimes. But I want to say with, uh, with Jesus to Peter, yeah, talk the talk, you know. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. God showed you this, and you spoke up, and that's a good thing. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 21, If you don't praise me, the rocks will have to do it for you, because somebody is going to praise me. And our choir sings this beautiful song, If we keep our voices silent, then will the very rocks cry out. And I think joy is the serious business of heaven, as, as Lewis Smead says, to miss out on joy is to miss out on the reason for our existence. And I love uh, Peter's joyful exclamation that, that Jesus really is who he, he says he is. And I don't want to be like Michael. You remember in the Old Testament the story of Michael, the wife of David, who missed the dance of her life because she didn't like David's exuberance before the Lord. There's something to be said for rejoicing. In fact, I think about Palm Sunday, which is kind of our big Sunday, to give thanks to God and to recognize who Jesus is, just like the crowds that welcome Jesus into the city. And uh, years ago, Walter Brueggemann, a pastor uh, in his church, had a Palm Sunday celebration, and they brought the kids in with these palm branches. And the kids were waving the palm branches. They kind of marched them through the neighborhood first. And one guy uh, apparently opened his window and said, Who do you people think you are? The Salvation Army? You know, I thought you were a Methodist church. And uh, Brueggemann was standing there, and he said, As a matter of fact... We are the Salvation Army. That's our work. We're here to bring salvation to the world. And sometimes for fear of hypocrisy, we may fail to commit ourselves completely and verbally and vocally to the Lordship of Christ. But I just want to say simply, we need to talk the talk. But then, as we look at verses 21 to 25, after we speak up for Jesus, that's when we walk the walk. You know, it's like the, the young baseball player who uh, went to uh, a farm club and was always talking about God, always talking about God, and he kept striking out. And, and uh, the manager took him aside and said, look... Um, hit home runs first, then talk about God. You know, because when you're talking and you're not producing, nobody's listening to you. And I would say that if our walk doesn't match our talk, we lose credibility. In fact, I think Peter's problem was not unlike ours. Peter misunderstood Messiahship. 
and a misunderstanding of messiahship. You know, he thought Jesus was going to be this conquering king and right then and, uh, and put them all on thrones. And if we misunderstand his messiahship, then I think that leads to a distorted discipleship. Which is why Jesus, uh, after Peter rebukes him, says, Get behind me. Uh, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus says, If you want to come after me, you've got to follow me. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So to be a follower of Jesus Christ is not to find a life of ease, but to find a life of commitment that says, God, I will... I will go where you go. And where does Jesus go? He goes to the cross and he says, As the master will the servant be. Unless, in John, he says, in the same sort of uh, uh, encounter, he says, Unless a seed of grain falls to the ground and dies, it will remain alone. But if it dies, it will bear great fruit. And for you and I to bear great fruit, we will sometimes have to follow Christ into uh, his suffering and uh, make choices that deny ourselves. So life is not about self and about selfishness. Uh, in Newsweek's article about Jesus um, there were some interesting statistics. In answer to the question, do you think Jesus Christ ever actually lived, 93%, listen to this, 93% of Christians said yes. And I was like, really? So 7% of Christians didn't believe Jesus really lived. Um, I would think that would be a prerequisite for being a Christian. But anyway, the other statistic was um, they asked if they believed that Christ rose from the dead after dying on the cross. And 88%, I mean, that wouldn't be a bad grade on a test, you know. 88% of Christians said yes. Um, but 32% of non-Christians said yes. And I just want to clarify, you know, you can't be a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, I think that's just a basic prerequisite to believe that he, he died on the cross and that he rose again. There's some things I think, you know, the timing of Jesus coming, I think there's some things that we can't be uh, dogmatic about. But we, we can be sure about this, that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthians, if Christ is not raised, then our hope is in vain. And my fear is, and I think this is what Jesus is addressing with Peter, is that it's possible maybe to get just enough Christianity to be inoculated against the real thing. You know, to uh, say, oh yeah, Jesus, you're, you're the one, you're the Christ, you know, and say the right thing. And then in that moment when it comes to the moment, and I think Peter's going to come to that moment, we're going to study that, where he has a chance to speak up for Jesus, and uh, they've, they've already hauled Jesus off, and they're going to crucify him. And three times Peter's going to deny him by the fire. And this is where the inconsistency of his talk and walk catch up with him. And my word to you is, um, you know, it's a great thing to love Jesus verbally and talk about him. Um, but if at some point our walk doesn't match that, I believe there are strategic moments in our life when that can really catch up with us. And uh, we want to, you know, we, don't, we want to be the authentic article um, to have integrity, to, uh, to be genuine and real with our faith. I love Frank Harbour's story about the general uh, in a, a previous war who went to inspect the troops along the front lines. And at one location, he gets out of the jeep and a bullet just whistles over his head. And he ducks down and he runs into the bunker and he says to the captain, there's a sniper out there, captain. And the captain says, we know, sir. Locate him. We have, sir. We know exactly where he is. Shoot him then. Well, you might want to reconsider that order, sir. For six weeks, he's been shooting over our heads and missing. We're afraid if we kill him, they're going to replace him with somebody who can shoot. Which, I mean, would be a real problem. Um, so, you know, I would just say, uh, Satan's not worried about nominal Christians who refuse to believe in the resurrection. They're not going to do him any damage. Um, but he is concerned about those of us who actually not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And maybe that's why Jesus' rebuke is so sharp here. Get behind me. You want to follow me? You've got to get behind me. You've got to be who you say you are. 
Because there were lots of crowds of people. Remember, just think about Palm Sunday. All those people saying, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then uh, that, was, <laughs> that was Sunday. And Friday, some of those same people were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It's an amazing thing, the sort of fickle crowds. And uh, people will say one thing and do another. I always remember the story of Marvin Griffin, who recognized that the voice of the people can be fickle. Uh, he ran for governor of Georgia against uh, Carl Sanders years ago. And his strategy was to have great gatherings around the state of Georgia and give them free barbecue. And so he did that, and uh, he had those all over the state. And then election day came, and he, he lost in a landslide. And his uh, memorable comment was, well, they ate old Marvin's barbecue, but they didn't vote for me. And, uh, you know, this is Jesus. You know, he's feeding these crowds of people, you know, uh, 5,000 people with fishes and loaves. But on the day of his crucifixion, many of them were part of that crowd that said, crucify him. You know, it's one thing to love a parade. Uh, Ann Weems says, in a frenzy of celebration, we gladly focus on Jesus and generously throw down our coats and palms in his path. And we can, we can shout praise loudly enough to make a Pharisee complain. It's also good to parade. But it's in between the parades that we don't do so well. We don't do so well from Sunday to Sunday. For we forget our hosannas between the parades. And the stones will have to shout. Because we won't. I think uh, she's got a point that um, it's not enough just to, just to talk the talk. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. Um, um, John MacArthur calls it easy believism. And we have to examine our lives in the light of the one who gave his life for us. Missionary Herbert Schaefer tells about a 13-year-old girl in China who continued with her family to worship Christ in their home during what was called the Cultural Revolution, which had nationalized religion and banned private worship. And um, one evening, the Red Guards burst into their little house and chastised them for worshiping Jesus. And their little altar with a crude cross stood in the center of the room. And uh, they were determined to channel their energies into following the dictates of Chairman Mao. So the Red Guard leader demanded that they spit on the cross, and they refused. And the Red Guard lieutenant became indignant, and he bellowed at them and told them, lest they spat on the cross, that they would be punished by death. And one by one, the people walked by and spat on the cross and walked out, except the 13-year-old girl. And she said, I can't and I won't. I believe in Jesus Christ and I won't do that. And uh, they yelled at her and they shouted at her. And then the lieutenant seemed pleased in a strange sort of way. He said, this is the kind of faith we want to see in the new China. People who commit themselves so totally, they're willing to die for what they believe in. She later escaped to uh, Hong Kong and... Uh, she enrolled in a seminary there. I just think this is really critical for those who wish to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Because it's pretty easy these days to become a member of a church. It's not hard to repeat a sinner's prayer. Uh, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we not only believe that he died on the cross, but we're willing to follow his example and deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. And I was wondering this morning, just as we close, is that what we meant by becoming a Christian? Because that is precisely what God means. Thank you.